Hey everyone, welcome back to the 443 Security Simplified. I'm your host, Mark Liberty, and joining me today is... Corey, pick all the bicycles in this image, not right <laughs> On today's episode, we'll be discussing a new flavor of phishing evasion, I suppose, phishing detection evasion, as well as hacking in space and the latest updates from our friends at the TSA. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and stroll on in. If you had said orbit on in, I could have followed up with, or fall from orbit on in if you're Elon Musk. Hey oh. <laughs> so, our first news story this week is actually, I guess it could be considered a follow up to one of our predictions for uh, one of our cybersecurity predictions for 2022. Uh, so if you remember, one of our predictions back that we, what was it, like early December or late November when we published them, uh, was that we believed that uh, we would see some satellite hacking going on in this year. And this yes, is one where like... Hacks. Who can forget scared satellites on, on the Late Late <laughs> Show with Mark? That is actually genuinely my favorite video that we recorded for all of them, so... If yeah, you haven't Chris, checked it out. Chris did fantastic is scared, scared satellite or whatever. Yep. And if I remember right, there was actually like a news story that kind of at least confirmed the probability of it, like really shortly before we actually published them or like shortly after. Um, but it looks like the risk to... I think it was literally after we wrote them, but right before we published them. Yeah. And it appears that the risk to space satellites and satellite communications or SATCOM is in fact growing. Uh, in fact, so last week, the Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Agency, so CISA, uh, our favorite acronym on this podcast, along with the FBI, published an alert urging satellite communications or SATCOM network providers to basically beef up their security in response to several alleged disruption attacks from Russia as a part of their war with Ukraine. So basically, starting in February 24th, alongside the invasion of Ukraine, uh, European and U.S. agencies identified some disruption, jamming, and spoofing attacks against various satellite networks in Eastern Europe, including an outage affecting Viasat customers in Ukraine and an outage affecting 6,000 wind turbines that use satellite communication in Germany. Uh, so this alert comes after, on March 11th, uh, Reuters, uh, Reuters? Man, uh, every time I say that name, I feel like it's not the correct way to pronounce it, but I know it is. Uh, roto Rooters. <laughs> they published an article that the NSA, uh, France's cybersecurity agency, and Ukraine intelligence organizations were all investigating that February 28th disruption. So it seems like they've at least partially completed their investigation and realized they needed to sound the alarm for uh, cyber threats targeting satellites out there. So pause here for a second. This is a very, very high tech, a very interesting future we're going towards. Although, you know, you say high tech, but I feel like the bulk of our satellite infrastructure is probably Some significantly of them are low tech. Yeah, less technical yeah. than we may think. I, I assume the higher tech or the more, let's say, the more recent satellites might have more security mechanisms and controls in them. I'd be more worried about slightly old ones. Yeah, high tech, maybe, maybe you would think high tech, but I think in the prediction we covered, satellites are just... Uh, <laughs> computers 
that are floating in orbit with radio communications that are non-standard, you know, they're, or, or maybe they're standard, but they're not your typical Wi-Fi or internet wire. But at the end of the day, it's just a computer with inputs and outputs. And when you get to some of the, I'm sure we'll get to mitigations when we do, you realize that, yeah, this is very operational technology hardware, but a lot of the the high-level best practices aren't that abnormal from what you would expect from any other computing device. No, some of the issues they've been running into, so the uh, EU Aviation Safety Agency, so EASA, ESA, interesting, uh, noted that the one of the GPS satellite networks over in Europe, there appear to be issues with jamming and spoofing, so basically spoofing airplanes uh, appearing where they not necessarily are over in Europe by disrupting these satellite connectivities. There is that disruption for like um, satellite communications from Viasat. If you remember pretty early on in this war, Elon Musk shipped over a truckload of Starlink. Uh, what are they called? Like ground stations or whatever to give satellite coverage to folks in Ukraine. And they actually ended up having to pivot almost the entirety of their engineering force to combating disruption over the next few weeks uh, to try and uh, fix some of the holes that they found basically. So it's pretty nice. And it, honestly, it makes sense. Like global military organizations re rely on satellites for communication. Well, I guess modern global military organizations rely on satellites for communication. It appears Russia is relying on 2G and having a bit of a rough time with that. Uh, but obviously satellite imaging is massive these days. Like we've got private organizations able to take pictures of battlefields now which is pretty insane it makes sense that as a as an act during an act of war you would want to disrupt that as much as you possibly could so uh yeah it totally makes sense seeing that happen uh when it comes to the actual mitigations uh cisa broke it out into basically two categories one specifically for satcom providers and then one for providers and customers and at the high, like the bulk of it, as I look through the mitigations, a lot of them are just general best practices for IT in general. It's like for the mitigations for SATCOM providers, it basically boiled down to uh, additional monitoring for ingress and egress points for SATCOM equipment and look for anomalous traffic. Like look for things like open management access, telnet, FTP, SSH for these SATCOM terminals. Um, look for unexpected communications between different network segments or unauthorized local or backup account usage, uh, unexpected terminal to terminal traffic. Like all this is basically like I'd say any organization for look should look for this style of traffic, not even yeah. if you're not a SATCOM provider. Like, like I said, it doesn't seem very high tech in 101. That said, I, I'll, I'll save this for another topic, but that in itself could be a problem. You know, it, it is true that operational technology like satellites at the end of the day are just computers with inputs and outputs and sometimes use the same services like TFTP or FTP that anything else does. But there are also specific uh, purpose created and can sometimes have something unique that most, both makes them harder to secure because you know, what they do kind of require certain things. So it does make me, I, I will get to another story later, but yeah, at the highest level, these are just computers. So a lot of best practices at the highest level can apply. But is there a chance that this simplification of high level best practices doesn't really go into depth of some of the needs of these OT networks, which might complicate 
applying typical best practices because of the purpose they serve. So, yeah, sounds I, like I, Corey's hinting at a future story we're going to chat about in a bit. I, I guess so. <laughs> but I, I what I'm <laughs> essentially saying is it might apply here. I, I mean, I like this alert. I it, it confirms kind of our not that the prediction has happened, not that we've seen the space hack, but that we're definitely not off base for talking about them. Uh, and I think you and I say whether we give it fancy acronyms like operational technology or, or Internet of Things, whether it's a consumer device or a, a manufacturing device, really, at the end of the day, they're just computers. <laughs> and so a lot is similar. But I do think there's very unique situations and unique capabilities and, and requirements for some of this OT technology that, you know, the security community I love that we're giving the advice and trying to make people look at interesting things like satellite technology, but we need to also make sure to work with the satellite folks to figure out what's unique and different about those environments to make sure that the high level advice really applies. By the way, I assume CISA and FBI may have done that, but as I keep hinting, we'll, we'll talk about a related thing a little later. Yeah, hundred uh, percent. When it comes to like consumers of SATCOM though, like again, the guidance is basically what I'd expect for any old telco consumer, uh, basically use secure methods for authentication, don't use default credentials, things like that, enforce principles of least privilege, review your trust relationships with your IT service providers. So make sure that you're only giving the minimum level of access required for that and that their contracts you have with them have appropriate provisions for addressing security. Uh, implement your own independent encryption across these communication links instead of relying on the SATCOM provider. And, you know, the basics of strengthen your operating system, firmware security, do patch management, vulnerability management, and configuration management to ensure you're closing all of those gaps. Uh, so basically, again, like everything that I would expect from typical IT best practices uh, now being applied in space. And I guess when we're talking specifically SATCOM rather than purpose-driven satellites like GPS ones, this is basically just the internet and networking pushed through satellites. In, in that sense, a lot of the best practices will still be the same. At the end of the day, it's network traffic going through the satellite. So had your own encryption on top of it. Cool. Problem solved. And a little bit of MFA. At least we know that at the end of this year, we'll at least have a, a single point for a correct prediction out of the, uh, the ones that we made. We'll see. Uh, I think we found a couple. I've been sending articles to uh, some of our friends about the predictions. So there's been a few. I think the car, what was was that last year? Anyways, maybe I forget because sometimes our old predictions come true to a, a year later. So we've been hitting on a lot of things lately. Maybe we'll finally surpass 50% and make my mom proud. I, I would have to say if we go back to some of our 75, 50%, I bet you those percentages have gone up a year later. Yep, just a little too early with our our Nostradamus. Yeah. What can I say? Our thought leadership is too good. <laughs> we're too, we're too ahead of the curve. <laughs> All right. Let's deflate Corey's head just, now. Just kidding. And just move kidding. on to the next just one. <laughs> uh, so if you remember last week, we were chatting about the latest executive order from President Biden and the White House on uh, cryptocurrency and how they basically want to set up their own, you know, potentially central bank backed cryptocurrency. And as we were discussing that, the topic came up of some previous executive orders from last year around cybersecurity and basically, hey, maybe we should check in and see how that's going. Uh, well, it turns out it's not going bum, great. Bum, bum. <laughs> <laughs> so last July, the Transportation Security Agency, or TSA, all of our favorite airport checkers, 
Um, apparently, they're also responsible for other forms of transportation, including transporting petroleum products through pipelines. Uh, so last July, they issued their first compulsory cybersecurity requirements for the pipeline industry in the wake of that colonial pipeline hack earlier in the year. And in the last nine months since then, it's turning out that the practical implementations of these rules have not been super great. So at a high level, the, the rules they put out was like 30 or 40 pages or so. Uh, it laid out three high-level requirements. One, these pipeline industry organizations need to implement cr uh, critically important mitigation measures to reduce the risk of compromise from cyber attack. They need to develop cybersecurity contingency and response plans to reduce the risk of operational disruption or degradation. And they need to test the, eff uh, the effectiveness of the owner and operator network's cybersecurity practices through annual cybersecurity architecture design and review, which at a high level, that all sounds great. Like at a high level, this is exactly what I think we were expecting a governing body to demand of a critical infrastructure uh, segment like this. Uh, that said, when it comes to that actual first rule, the one requiring the mitigations for all information and OT uh, systems, uh, it turns out that some of the blanket mitigations are really difficult to enable for the operational technology segments of these systems. Um, at a high level, there's like a few requirements they laid out, like applying multi-factor authentication to all non-service accounts, implementing network segmentation, update to log retention policies, deploying filters to block and uh, monitor traffic, weekly anti-malware scans on access and on-demand scans for IT and OT systems, passive DNS monitoring capabilities. Like all these are things that they sound like great ideas and ones that like I meant to speak for Corey here and say that we firmly believe they should be implemented at least on IT systems, but the actual pipeline operators- yeah, they should be implemented where it's possible. Yes. The pipeline operators are finding that it's actually very difficult to implement a lot of these on the OT systems, which are, as a part of this rule, a requirement though. Um, basically it boils down to they're complaining that some of these are overly prescriptive in nature uh, and that a lot of IT security control stuff is basically copy pasted into the OT in a way that's disruptive. Um, like a classic example is have some sort of endpoint security control monitoring thing. <laughs> <laughs> these are closed hardware systems that sure at the end of the day, they're a computer, but you can't just put endpoint software on it, uh, patch everything. Fantastic if the vendor releases patches, but some of these are very special. Like maybe company like Siemens and others are starting to get to the point where they patch these very, very specific, super expensive, you know, purpose-driven systems. But still, that's dependent on the vendor, and then there's downtime associated. So this is a a very good example of how. You know, these high level general security practices are great, but life is never perfect. Uh, I, I think anyone, even working in corporate security, realizes there's situations where the business need of, of an operation kind of makes one of the controls you might prefer impossible or, or uh, you know, untenable to implement. So you have to figure out a different way to mitigate the same type of risk. And if there's a learning here, not just for the TSA, I think this could be anyone listening is, you know, don't be that security ivory tower person. The The risk management CSO, CISO, they need to be talking to business owners to figure out 
what are you trying to do? What are the systems you're using to try to do it? And what needs to happen for business to work? And there will be some cases where maybe you can't push your default favorite control in a situation because there's, a, you know, I can't, why can't I think of the word? There's other circumstances, you know, that are just making that so it won't work, will be too disruptive, or it just isn't possible in that situation. So to me, this this kind of shows that there was no communication, that this was just a written set of prescribed rules rather than the organizations going out, setting a, a council where they invited all the, the OT owners, the, you know, the infrastructure folks to say, hey, here's what we think you should do, but tell us about your systems. Tell us how things are set up now. Give us an idea of how you do stuff so that they could actually write more custom and specific practices rather than just throwing out the standards. Yeah. And so like some of the things they're pointing to, uh, the pipeline IT folks are pointing to are like they're saying MFA and rapid patching uh, requirements are inappropriate for industrial technology, which, you know, I can kind of I, I can get with that. And that especially if you've got some of these air gapped OT systems, like especially ones that I mean, it's entirely possible they weren't designed for authentication in general, but even slapping MFA on it when it's something that you still have to physically drive out there to go even access, it makes sense to not have, like, that shouldn't be a requirement. And yes, like, it's easy for us to say you should have a regular patching schedule, but if you're patching the the control valve for your pipe every three days or whatever, that will be massively disruptive to the entire apparatus. I, I agree, yeah. But I do admit there there should be pushback each way, though. I, I think you can't expect the pipeline maintained, the person running the pipeline and using the technology. What they're telling you is the vendors don't release a bunch of patches on this is one of the problems. And that's not their fault. They can't follow prescriptive rapid patching advice when patches don't exist. So part of it is going to the industry, the creators of the you know uh, pipeline OT to say, Hey, you you have to fix something about how you do updates. The fact that you don't update or that you make systems that have issues that don't get changed often, that's an issue with the actual manufacturers themselves, in my opinion. The, the second part of the problem, though, is uptime and downtime, though. But again, that's something I think the manufacturers can help fix. There, there has to be solutions for high availability. But I think the issue is, again, like the CISA and the TSA might be pushing these general practices down, but they're in an industry. I, I don't think the people that are making pipeline technology are, are up to date with the computer security of, say, an OS company yet. And so it's just going to be impossible. Now, that's not to say it shouldn't be possible. Maybe authentication needs to be. Maybe it's not MFA. Maybe it's more digital certificate-based authentication that device-to-device -device things should use. But again, that's something the manufacturers have to build in into their very proprietary communication protocols. Maybe that should be there. But that's not something the operators, the people that are in the pipelines now can do. That's something manufacturing is making all this equi equipment have to commit to over time. So what I don't want to lose, it's like this happened. We I think we talked to one of the FDA folks about it. Like medical gear, it's the same problem. If they tried to give prescriptive security to a hospital today, go patch all your medical stuff right away. 
they would have problems. This is stuff that deals with life. You can't have downtime for it, and there's not a ton of patches. But our government is actually working with medical device manufacturers to try to get some sort of regulation around the security of the devices. So, so again, I, I kind of feel for both sides. I feel for the all the operators that are getting these general recommendations that aren't really tuned to their industry and, and simply can't do some of the things based on, uh, you know, the, the state of the industry itself. But at the same point, the industry is behind, <laughs> you know, I, one thing I question is if you can't patch them, if you can't give them security updates, why the freak are they online in the first place? Why do they have any connection to a network? That's the whole point of an air gap. If there is no other security control, by definition, you have to totally segment them away. So, hey, manufacturers, if you're not going to actually put the dang security controls in, get rid of all your darn network connections because they're going to have to be air gapped. I do have to cut the wire because you guys are too idiotic to make secure equipment. So it, it's... Anyways, I, I kind of I, I think the the manufacturers of the technology are probably the biggest culprits here. Although, again, I do think the TSA should have actually had some back and forth with the pipeline and industrial control community before they just started spouting out general advice. And it seems like the TSA might be in a little over their head or at least like fresh on this whole defining cybersecurity requirements. Like one of the big complaints is the industry has made 370 requests for alternative techniques to meet their goals, but only five have been granted, partly because the TSA simply doesn't have enough employees to process all of the requests. I, I was kind of weirded out when we first heard the CISA was pushing this to the T, because I never really thought of cybersecurity as something that I think we commented on that the first time. So yeah, obviously, they seem to be pretty understaffed on the cybersecurity stuff. And uh, may not be a super mature organization in that regard yet. And it basically boils down to what I think is honestly a fair request and that most of the pipeline operators are requesting an outcomes-based rule instead of some of these specific implementation requirements. Like they're asking, for example, uh, instead of saying you need to uh, segment your systems by deploying XYZ technologies, it should be your system, your network should, should be segmented, segment. basically. And then as long as you have a secure outcome for that, you meet the requirement. And a lot of the most secure, whether it's HIPAA, PC, uh, PCI, uh, a lot of the most secure regulatory compliance around cybersecurity is like that. When they get prescriptive, it's mostly just on encryption ciphers. But for instance, they'll say encrypt data and at least hit this level of cipher, but they don't tell you what products or how or whether it should be IPsec or S. You know what I mean? So I, I think they can learn from exactly what you said. The, the other compliance out there doesn't give you exact things to do because there is everyone has to do something slightly different. Rather, they kind of give you the higher level like you, you mentioned. You know, it, it is OK to say encrypt all data in transit and at least use something that is this level of, of bit strength, but not tell you exactly how to encrypt it. Yeah, 100%. Either way, though, like <laughs> we figured we should do a check in and it doesn't seem to be going well. Feels like the uh, the training wheels might still be on in this case. And they do like the TSA, to their credit, does seem receptive and at least wanting to solicit feedback and modify the rules. There was always going to be growing pains with something like this, especially on the short timeline they had to turn around a set of requirements. But like you said, like I'd like to see back and forth uh, arguments on you know, not just coming to a middle ground, but making sure it's a secure middle ground on implementation for this, because it is 
I mean, it is a critical infrastructure piece of our infrastructure and securing it. Is the intention is still pure and great. Yeah. And I still have hope for this. I think we, we said this at the beginning, the high level idea is great. We have hope for it. We were skeptical because we realize it's a lot easier said than done. <laughs> you know, um, me and Mark have security aspirations for the things we control too. And, but uh, it takes a while to get there depending on business, b b a lot, on a lot of things. So I don't see this as a total failure yet. Hopefully they'll listen. The good news is the communication, you know, the executive order has forced some communication. There's back and forth being happening. And this latest one might seem negative, but the, it's open for discussion now, which, you know, hopefully it will come to a good solution. Good thing for all of us to learn, learn from too, right? I mean, it's easy to say the right thing. Uh, it's sometimes hard to do it because their life realities are imperfect there's already always little things that you have to mitigate around and figure out and it's good for uh CISA to learn from too because if you remember the pipeline industry was the first of many of these critical infrastructure yeah. segments that we're going to get <laughs> hit with uh, a lot of these yeah. regulation requirements now and it feels like with this this war going on like it, the timeline's going to be sped up as well so i i hope tsa can help figure it out and any other agency responsible for the other segments Good luck to you. <laughs> um, so, and I bet the industry will react to. Yeah. I, I do think when government starts trying to regulate industry, but then when said regulation isn't coming off well, industries say, "I'm not going to wait for you guys to figure this out, and I'm just going to do it." So, so maybe the actual pipeline operators. I, I think they already have a motive to do this based on you know the colonial pipeline hack etc so really you can act now if you're one of these industries without waiting for this yeah i mean this all kind of falls into cisa has this whole thing they're calling shields up since the start of february basically they understand that the global stability right now in terms of like cyber warfare isn't so hot and so they're trying to speed up a lot of the processes for a lot of these critical sectors to ensure that they are secure against potential cyber disruption. So uh, that's another area. Interesting thing to look at. CISA.gov slash shields dash up. Lots of really interesting uh, topics on what they're planning on doing there for all critical infrastructure. Um, so moving on to the last story, which is actually just a kind of fun bit of research from one organization on the latest evolutions of phishing that I thought would be interesting to discuss. Fun only if you consider effective ways to continue tricking users. It's fun. Oh, man. It's it's good research. When I say it's also fun, a little scary to me. I mean, from a from a like research perspective, understanding that, you know, at the end of the day, these fun things end up with people losing access to their accounts and thousands of dollars being stolen yeah. all over the place. But interesting. I think people could fall for this interesting yes. thing, which you'll share with us now. Yeah. So researchers at Ivana have identified a phishing campaign that appears to evade automated tools like secure email gateways by leveraging CAPTCHA. So if you know the whole pick out a sailboat or a float plane little options you have when you're trying to access a site through like a VPN, for example, uh, those are designed to stop bots from being able to access those systems. And it turns out threat actors are now using that exact same methodology to prevent automated tools from catching their fishes. Uh, so the phishing emails in question included either an HTML or a PDF file attachment that when opened first prompted the user to solve a CAPTCHA uh, before displaying the actual fish. Uh, the fish itself was pretty basic. Uh, in a few of the cases, they're basically just an Office 365 authentication form trying to trick users into logging in to view a, a faxed document. 
but again, automated tools considered they were clean because all they saw was this page with a captcha on it. So what are your thoughts on this one, Corey? Is this the next evolution of phishing? Are we all going to have to solve captchas now before uh, getting our money from Nigerian princes? They're irritating enough already. I, I think <laughs> yes. I mean, besides the the technical part of this, which is the CAPTCHA code uh, obfuscating the the security control from yet seeing the actual phishing site behind it, that's a great technical evasion. I also wonder if this might help people think something is legitimate. I mean, I think people have gotten so used to in life, at least I have, even Google, right? If I VPN and try to log into my Google account, I occasionally get these on-demand, you know, captures that are context-based to make sure I really am who I am because they see something different. Uh, every forum site I go to now, we're so used to legitimate people saying, hey, I, I, I have some of your data and I want to make sure you're really legitimate legitimate so solve this captcha for me and because of that now we'll see it in email and i wonder if humanity will also just psychologically think oh this this might be legitimate because companies do this now <laughs> so yeah i i i I guess we'll see. I don't know if it will blow up as I guess what really what would be really great to know is what percentage of people actually follow through with this and get to the phishing site. I guess that's what we don't know yet. But it seems like a pretty smart technical evasion to try to get your phishing link to be evaded uh, by the security software looking for it. And perhaps even a psychological social engineering link that somehow gives you comfort that something that is more legitimate than you than it really is. And I, I agree with all of that. And I feel like the end result will probably just be these email security services, just adding CAPTCHA as a signature for blocking a, a message. Like, because at the end of the day, there's not a lot of legitimate cases where you'd want a email attachment to load up something with CAPTCHA. Like their whole point is to protect yeah. against automated bots. And if it's an email, like it just, it doesn't make sense for me. Technological. That, that's the... It depends, I guess, on how they deliver it, though, Mark, because I agree with you that we never legitimately see CAPTCHAs in the email directly. But if we did see a link and we clicked on it and it was a Microsoft, like a, we are used to clicking on a link and going to a website that might immediately feed us a CAPTCHA then. So I, I guess it depends on how they do it in the email, if they can somehow make it look like the captions actually coming from the on you know the website you're going to rather than just being embedded in the email but i'm with you i i think we the good news is we don't see captions in the email legitimately they're always on the web connection part of things so that alone will be a good thing for technical controls to look for right now god forbid someone suddenly decides to legitimately try to use captions in email and thus ruins that because now we have to deal with those false positives and until now if you're listening to this every time you encounter a captcha you're gonna have to second guess is this a fish or did i just forget to disconnect the vpn before logging into gmail who knows i have my vpn all the time now so i'm getting used to being fed captures by facebook netflix gmail and everyone else unfortunately with my work inside watchguard's internal organization and still working remotely i've got different vpns i have to connect to throughout the day so never quite on a nord or whatever my equivalent is you, you've never connected to those vpns through a private vpn just it actually can work vpnception just it's a little nuts but it works i sure love that it's total vpn second and a half latency from <laughs> vpn and a vpn and a vpn as my yeah. connection bounces around the world let's let's multiply latency even more that's from fun. now on i will access our internal organization's uh systems through the tor browser as well <laughs> extra layers of security 
and fishing protection. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. If you have any questions on today's topics or suggestions for future episode topics, you can reach out to us on Twitter. I'm at XORRO underscore. Corey is at SecAdept. And the both of us are at hashtag the 443 podcast. Thanks again for listening, and you will hear from us next week.